0: to the AO Trauma North America Mentor-Mentee Interview Series. I'm Stephen Shiman, an orthopedic trauma surgeon at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Thank you for tuning in. I would like to remind you that the video recordings of the Mentor-Mentee Interviews are available on the AO Trauma North America YouTube channel. And don't forget to check out other Mentor-Mentee Interviews on the AO Trauma North America Spotify channel or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Good afternoon uh, from Davos here at the AO Courses. My name's Taylor Young. I'm an orthopedic trauma surgeon at Texas Tech University Health Science Center in El Paso, Texas. I'm here with one of my great mentors, Dr. Bill Obramski. Today, we're taking part in an interview for the AO Mentor Mentee Series. Dr. Obramski has been a phenomenal mentor for me personally. He's helped me uh, both professionally, personally, you name it. And so I continue to look to him for advice in pretty much all situations. And so hopefully today we can hear some great insights from him about how to build a very successful orthopedic career and uh, help give young surgeons advice on how to navigate their early careers. So uh, thanks so much for joining me, Dr. O. It's a pleasure to have you here. And it's really, really incredible experience to be here with you in Davos especially. So uh, it's been a a really good time so far and I'm looking forward to the next few days as well. So thanks for being
0: here. Thank you, Taylor. It's an honor to be here. Uh, Davos in, uh, is a special place and it's a special place for all orthopedic surgeons because of AO. This is our birthplace, basically, where, where uh, modern orthopedics began.
1: Well, it's great to make the pilgrimage back to the, the motherland, so to speak, with you. Uh,
0: what's, what's your favorite part about coming to Davos? It's the people. You know, it, it's the people that you develop a relationship. I came here for the first time 25 years ago uh, when I was a fellow in, uh, in Basel, uh, and I was traipsing around my four-year-old, my two-year-old, and my two-month-old with my wife, and that was challenging, but it was a special place then, um, as, it is, as it is now. Nice. Well, you, you, you sort of touched on one question I was hoping to ask you about, and
1: uh, you've sort of had an atypical path. I would say uh, you were in the Air Force. And then, like you said, you did a fellowship in Basel. And funny enough, I followed you there now 20 years later and did the uh, A.O. Jack McDaniel fellowship there. And so how, how did you find your way to orthopedics and more specifically orthopedic trauma in general uh, on that atypical path?
0: Yeah, I, I found orthopedics just uh, uh, when I was at Duke as a medical student. Uh, I really thought I was going to do family practice. I mean, I didn't know. I was from a small town in the Midwest and didn't know many doctors. Uh, but as part of the football team at Duke, I met some of the orthopedic surgeons and started to actually go in the operating room uh, as a undergraduate. And then it became sort of a natural progression. I, I liked problems that could be fixed. I liked, loved the pathophysiology of general surgeon surgery um, but I just didn't like the problems and, and I thought in orthopedics we were about quality of life and returning to function and I found that more palpable and, and uh, sort of resonated with me. Who, who are the individuals
1: that sort of helped you on that path and, and, and maybe talk about what set them apart
0: as, as mentors in your own life. Yeah, well, you know, we're all here because of people whose shoulders we stood on. And, and you know, one of the first orthopedic surgeons I met was Bill Garrett, who was a sports medicine doctor, and, and Jim Urbannock, both at Duke, uh, who were great mentors. And I think what I loved about them is somewhat their their critical mind and their giving to others. Uh, and were, were more than willing to give of their time and effort and energy to help those behind them along. And, and I worked in a lab with Bill Garrett and uh, you know made it possible for me to get an orthopedic residency at the University of Washington, which was a great uh, stepping stone. I thought I was going to go back and do sports medicine at Duke at the time, uh, but, uh, you know, I just liked the problems of trauma and being at Harborview, uh, I got infected and, uh, you know, uh, and convinced that, uh, that, that, uh, that that's a great career. Nice. That's excellent. You, you're, you're really somebody who's been a prolific investigator
1: and you have hundreds of publications. You've really impacted modern orthopedics.
0: What makes research so important to you? Well, I guess it probably goes back to one of my, my main mentors. One of my main mentors at the University of Washington is Mark Swinkowski, and and I remember very clearly, you know, walking on the orthopedic floor and uh, had done maybe a couple of humorous operations that that week and making rounds with him, you know, late in the evening. And I just said to him, "Why don't we fix all these? I mean, these people do so great. It's amazing." I was so energetic as a junior resident, and he stops and he looks at me and he says, "Why don't you go read about that?" and come back and we'll talk about it again tomorrow. And, and so I did, and then I realized, like geez, I guess an awful lot of these heal okay, and maybe we don't have to fix them all. And, and that was my introduction, really, to evidence-based medicine, when someone really questioned my in, enthusiasm and, and made me go look at the data. Uh, And so I I went back and that, that was a little bit of a light bulb going off that you can use the experience of the literature and of others to help guide your decision making. To guide clinical practice. To guide clinical practice for patient outcomes. And and then I, I worked with him on uh, developing the uh, SMFA and sort of the first, one of the first functional outcome measures uh, before PROs were a cool thing, patient reported outcomes were cool. Uh, he was trying to do that and I took a very small part in that, but it really began to open my eyes to the possibilities of how we can improve and that what we really need to do is improve the results for the patient's perspective and not just so such that the x-ray looks good. Well, it's clearly been a springboard. And so um, how would you say
1: you've made Vanderbilt such a successful institution when it comes to research and maybe more specifically uh, how you've made them such a prolific enroller in metric studies and other uh, sort of research endeavors that uh, Vanderbilt has played such a critical role in?
0: Well, you know, Vanderbilt's a high-volume place, but you could—we couldn't do it without all of our partners sort of participating uh, in uh, in almost every study. uh, In that, we have a process of we agree that we're going to do or not do a study, and then if we're in, we're all in. Uh, And so, in some centers, that they like the research coordinators have to ask each physician if it's okay if they enroll a patient. Uh, But at least the culture in our place is that if we're going to do it, that everybody can participate in it. And I think that's greatly helped our process. And then we've had really good help from, um, from tremendous, uh, you know, uh, as I tell them, they're overworked, overmotivated, overeducated, and underpaid, uh, research assistants, uh, who, uh, we've had a great relationship with Rodrigo Pasante, uh, who has, uh, sent us a number of physicians to spend a couple years with us before they either finish their training in the U.S. or they go back home and, uh, and do training there. And I've had a fabulous research coordinator uh, who helps me manage all those things uh, and just makes it sort of run in the background of our, of our clinical practice. Excellent.
1: What advice would you offer to young investigators looking to have
0: similar success? I think, one, uh, you know, be curious uh, about, about the things you are seeing. Uh, and it may be that you don't end up at a level one trauma center as your first job. I started out in a community hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we saw a lot of ankle fractures. So we started, I started writing about ankle fractures. Uh, and then we saw some tibia fractures, some treated operatively, some non-operatively. So I started writing about that. Uh, and I think so to use what you see to begin to be critical and curious and question what you're doing, uh, one, two, always try to get better at what you're doing. you know. Even here, I feel like being around and being the AO and being around my colleagues, I feel like I'm gaining so much knowledge and still continue to hone your technical skill. Uh, at and, and a, a football coach, Bob Matheson, who was on the undefeated 72 Dolphins team, was a great mentor, and, and his thing was always get better. You're either getting better or you're getting worse in whether it's football, life, or orthopedics, and I've tried to live that. Uh, throughout my uh, my career
1: you you've gotten a lot of research funding and secured a lot of support for your research endeavors how, how would you advise young investigators in their pursuit of grants whether that be Department of Defense NIH or other entities because um, it's it can be a daunting process and so what are what
0: are some of the uh, yeah, it, pieces of advice you might offer in that regard it is a daunting process and so start small you know, start with you know uh, institutional grants or uh, OTA grants or AO grants that are smaller funded, uh, and you can and make sure it's attainable. You don't have to shoot for the moon. Uh, you know, a ten million dollar grant with ten thousand patients at a prospective randomized trial, but start with something small. Uh, I think is one piece of advice. Two is I like to call it get on a moving train. Research is so much more fun when you do it with your friends. Uh, And then you don't have to carry the whole load. You know, some people, they might do the IRB and you just get accepted at your place. You don't have to write everything. And and you can become times within the metric consortium, the major extremity trauma research consortium, uh, who's enrolled, you know, 13,000 patients or so in research, prospective research studies. There's at times a little bit of competitive nature of who's, you know, enrolling. And I think that that, you know, we are by nature a little competitive, uh, but also collaborative uh, and it just it and when you get together and you talk about it and it's group success. Uh and uh and so uh and the metric group was just recently awarded the Kappa Delta Award, which I think is phenomenal. I think just uh, indicative of the type of collaboration that orthopedic trauma surgeons can do. I think we are do a much better job of that than than many other subspecies of orthopedics. Excellent.
1: Um uh, as far as All these endeavors you're an excellent educator you're you've trained so many fellows you've done so many studies how do you how do you balance it all what's the secret to uh, keeping life balanced and being successful in both work and home and all those things
0: yeah it's life isn't always a balance Uh, I think it's intermittently imbalanced and that sometimes you're all in at work other times you're all in at home and sometimes you're in between but the the overall needs to have some balance uh, and, you know, when we're hiring, you know, young people, uh, you know, I just like to tell them I want them to stay and stay married. Uh, if we've done those things on young surgeons, we've done a good job. And, to, to, and then the other piece is just follow your heart or what, what fits you. Uh, and not everybody's interested in everything. And so you got to find what you're really interested in. Because most of research is drudgery. You know, it's that truly that 1% inspiration where you have the good idea, uh, but then it's 99% drudgery of doing the research and typing and, and writing the grant and then acquiring the data uh, and then reporting the data and then having to deal with reviewers uh, who redline every, uh, every other line that you do to have the gumption and the, the energy to do that. So I, 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 I that's... But I I think uh, you have to be really passionate and and love what you're doing or really want to know the the answer to the question and also understand that that question helps patients. Doing research for research is not very fun because you have a hard time seeing what it really means. Uh, And so for me, uh, almost everything I've done, I've tried to have it solve a clinically relevant question. You know, Jim Callum and Mike Bossy sort of told me the who cares. They made us use a different word, but, uh, you know, the who cares question. Like, if you get this done, who really cares? So for it to keep you through that drudgery, it's got to be clinically pertinent, and you have to be interested in it. With a a tangible impact or outcome. Right, for patients.
1: If it's okay with you, I'd like to maybe switch gears a little bit and talk about what I think is probably a, a very unique experience that you have had in your life that, um, that many haven't, and you may have a unique perspective uh, on that. And uh, basically, you have the unique perspective of more or less having a near-death experience or a potentially career-ending experience, and I'd love to kno- know how that's impacted you in general. Uh, would you mind talking about that and, and sharing about that experience and maybe uh, discussing how it's impacted your perspective,
0: both professionally and personally? Sure. 14 years ago in 2008, uh, I got a call. I was on call to come help one of the general surgeons who were taking the leg off a guy who had walked into the ER 12 hours before and uh, had neck fash. And his and, and I, you know, they were doing a hip disarticulation and they weren't so comfortable and they wanted help and he was dying. And so I went and I, I helped him take off the leg and it was really impressive that the entire leg was dead. And as we're sort of doing the posterior caps I mean, my friend uh, was with the Bovi Hot Knife Bovi going down and went in deep into my finger. That ends up being a red herring. But, uh, you know, I scrubbed out and said, ouch. And, uh, but it, uh, and the guide actually did okay and survived and seemed to be getting better, but then went into multi-organ failure and died. Uh, and, and I was fine. I went back to work and, uh, and a week later, actually eight days later, I started feeling like I just had the f- flu and didn't feel good. And, uh, you know, went home, went to bed and the next day I thought I only got a couple cases. And so before my first case, um, they couldn't find me and they actually have a picture my nurse. They couldn't, so they called, somebody called my nurse and I'm asleep in the surgeon's lands. I mean, I'm literally laid out like this. And, uh, and so I go and I do my case. I'm probably getting septic uh and then uh i they come back they can't find me for my last case of the day and again i'm sleeping in the surgeon's lounge there's this picture of me that's a little surreal that's a uh, that's atypical for yeah a little bit Dr. atypical o. i'm a little bit high and bouncing around the or and uh, happy to be there Uh, and then the next day I really didn't feel well. And I had a total hip uh, a few years before that. And I I thought, oh, you know, I had some cellulitis in my leg. And so I went to see a total joint doc and, and, uh, and they were like, well, we better get an MRI. And so they got an MRI and I had some cellulitis, but no hip, no, not, nothing seemed to be involving my hip. I'm like, okay, let me go home. Give me some PO antibiotics. Let me go home. And my wife, who's a pediatrician and much smarter than I am, just said no. And, uh, and so I went to the the uh, I got admitted to the, him into the hospital. And my last memory uh, for a long time was that one of our j- junior residents was coming by. They couldn't get an IV on me. I was probably low blood pressure. And it was our junior resident coming to help, offer to get an IV. And luckily, I waved him off, <laughs> and, uh, and the IV team got one. But that's my last conscious memory for about eight, nine days. Um, and uh, in that interim, uh, the next day, I was getting septic, and so my friend who I called said, I'm just not right. Come see me. I have no memory of that. My blood pressure was 70 over 50, uh, and it's nice when your friend is the director of the SICU and happened to be the one who stuck me in the finger. Uh, it wheels me over to the SICU where I spend eight days uh, intubated, sedated, and uh, the infection, actually, I probably became oral pharynx. Colonized with Group A strep, and they DNA matched it to the patient I had helped take care of uh, eight nine days ago, uh, and so I probably was an asymptomatic carrier. And then some chronic uh, Tina, you know, athlete's feet with a wound in my between my third and fourth or third and fourth web space, nose, to toes, picking my nose, coughing into it. Who knows? So sort I of got into that fresh wound, and that's where it sort of took off. And and I'm got some great scars from my toes to my groin. Uh, Luckily, my hip didn't get infected, didn't lose my leg like the guy uh, did. But, you know, I remember uh, eight, nine days later, they they said, uh, you know, spit real hard and we'll take this out. I felt like I was coming up from water, from underground, underwater. And... You know, I was kind of delirious for a couple days seeing things, and uh, and I couldn't feel my hand. And actually on discharge, you know, uh, my partner, Phil Krieger, you know, like, said, oh, great, you're leaving. And I go, my hand's numb. And he examined me. He says, you have a median nerve palsy. And so I had a pretty dense median nerve palsy. It ends up I had been tied down real tight because, as it said, I was, you know, violent when light, When they, so I was always fighting the restraints. I wasn't a very good patient, obviously. Um, And I wasn't sure that, uh, you know, I had a wound vac and a pick line and a big open sore on my inner groin and my foot uh, with wound vacs that eventually healed in. And uh, and those healed. And uh, my median nerve slowly recovered, took six months. And in that six months time, that's when metric was coming to life. And I, you know, typed, I'm a poor typist to begin with, but particularly with three fingers, it's even worse. And so we, I wrote some of those grants that were part of the first metric grant. So, again, trying to make lemonade out of, uh, you know, out of lemons. Uh, and it eventually came back. And I give the institution a lot of, they made me do some psychological testing, make sure my brain was okay, you know, make sure my cases were okay over the time period. Uh, and, uh, and I was impressed that, that there was that higher level of consideration. But end ended up being, I got a great story, some great scars, and no problems. Uh, people often ask me, you know, how did that affect me as a doctor? Uh, you know, I, I, my gift from my, my mom's, I always connected well. Um, so I, I'm not sure that that was better. Um, but it is a little bit fun to tell them I got better scars than they do. Or, you know, when they say, how long is the swelling going to last? I can tell them at least five years. Uh, and, uh, and so I think, that help, I think it helped somewhat in, so I could tell patients I've been there. Um, and I think that helps them think. I feel for them, uh, and so uh, I think that, that helped. And and just realizing what an impact that is on their lives, and uh, and we've done a lot of work with that with Metric and the incredible impact an injury or illness has on people, and their and the psychological importance of that of coming back. Uh, and that I, you know, I tell them you're not, you know, you're not sick, lame, or crazy. But you know, PTSD, depression, anxiety is really common. It's about a third of our trauma patients have it. And I think I can say that with real emphasis. And some with, uh, and if I, you know, sometimes they've already Googled me and they know that. Uh, but it just imprinted on my own self that that's as equal to get their brain as well as their body um, back together. And as you know, it's part of my checklist of things to ask patients about. When uh, when they're in clinic as well is about sleep disturbance. I mean, I slept terribly for about three months, uh, and so I ask every patient about that as well. And we need to help some of them or get them to somebody who's licensed to to tra- take care of those other problems. So a long a long answer, and it was a it's a long story with a good ending, um, and uh, and I because of that I've you know. Written a fair amount about necrotizing fasciitis, and because it's one of the rare things that orthopedic surgeons can save a life. We can stop bleeding. Uh, you know, we can uh, compartment syndrome uh, help with some of those things, but rarely do we make life-saving um, decisions. But taking some of the operating room at the right time and not blowing it off is is one of the critical things we can do. And so I hope some of what we've written. Uh, has helped other young surgeons to recognize it because not a, not as many places see it as frequently as we do in the Mid-South. It's a bit of a heat map there. Uh, and so uh, I think hope that that experience will maybe help some other surgeons save a life as luckily, you know, some partners help save mine. Well, it, I mean, it's clear that that adds in the sort of empathy you can feel
1: for your patients. And having done clinic with you plenty of times, I know that, Nobody relates better to their patients, and so uh, it's clearly made an impact in that regard. Would you say it's changed your perspective uh, outside of your clinical
0: practice as well? Like, how does it really impact your sort of view on life? Yeah, good question, uh, and I'm sorry I didn't address that. Uh, uh, it's a common, and I think it's made me be less anxious about things that work, and if the OR time's an hour and 15 instead of an hour, that's not such a big deal. Things that maybe I used to get a little wound up about, that I couldn't control, um, would bother me more. And I'd come home and I'd complain to my wife and she would, you know, listen to me. And uh, and I just, I, I don't feel some of that angst anymore. And, uh, and then I think it's uh, taught me to, to take the time uh, to, uh, to stay connected to people whether it's your, you know, your college friends, your high school friends, your AO friends, you know, your family, your kids, to give them a call. You know, we have a number of, you know, either WhatsApp or family text or, you know, Duke friends or ortho buddies uh, or fellows. As you know, we have a fellow group that I try to stay in touch with uh, weekly. Uh, and it uh, I think it's taught me that that that's what's important. Well, I know I definitely appreciate it.
1: I I consider you my my proud dad when it comes to orthopedics. And so thank you for for all that you've done in that regard. Uh, Would would you offer any closing thoughts or any other advice to young surgeons?
0: Um, I think it's a privilege to do what we do. There are very few jobs where you get to make people's lives better. Um, So I think with that, our responsibility is to keep getting better and to ask critical questions and to be curious about what you're doing and why you're doing it. I was a terrible why child. My parents, and and Dr. Swankowski will verify, I was a terribly why resident, and hence why I maybe I don't mind so much when students or medical students or fellows, you know, why are we doing that? I try to take a step back and try to explain to them, maybe, and it's my job to explain that. So keep asking why and keep getting better.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time to join me here in Davos. It's been uh, an excellent experience so far and I'm glad we could do this. I I know it took some logistics. I wanna thank everybody here in the studio and everybody at AO who helped uh, us make this possible because I know uh, we weren 't really sure how we were going to do this, so i 'm glad it worked out as well as it right. did and uh, i 'm so glad that we can add your perspective to sort of the aO mentor mentee series because, like I said, I think it 's an
0: incredibly valuable one and uh, a unique one for sure so and I think so it 's amazing that you know AO brought me here twenty five years ago. Mark Swankowski set it up for me. I said, where should I go? He said, you're going to Basel with Dr. Regazzoni, and uh, this is when you're going. And then when you were looking where you wanted to go, I'm like, Basel's a great place. I hope you go. And I think you had a wonderful experience as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, the amount of opportunities that the AO provides
1: to young surgeons, it's, it's unreal. And I would just encourage young surgeons to take advantage of
0: everything that the AO has to offer, too, you know. Awesome. Thank you so much. It, it's uh, truly the best part of my job is to help and train and educate and, you know, maybe give you some life advice uh, as a young star orthopedic surgeons. Absolutely.
1: Well, thanks for joining us as part of this AO mentor mentee series from uh, AO North America. And, and hopefully you learned some, great pieces of advice about life and, and practice and all those things from uh, a special person like Dr. Obremski. so thank you.